Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Inside Sports is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Enjoy the show. So we're going to hook up with Warren Moon and hear what the Hall of Fame quarterback has to say today. Always look forward to talking to Moon. Hello. There he is, the former Edmonton Eskimo quarterback. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Warren Moon joins me on Howard David Live. Um, Don Shula, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, one of the greatest co- cho- coaches excuse me, to ever uh, grace the sidelines in the NFL. Uh, I got a chance to uh, be in a Pro Bowl with him. My last Pro Bowl in 1998, I think it was, and he was coaching. And uh, I could see why he was such a great football coach because the Pro Bowl is usually a very laid-back event for the guys that come over there and play. They're worried more about what time they can get out to the golf course after <laughs> after practice is over. And nobody wants to practice very hard or or more or less meet. Um, but he uh, he was such a attention-to-detail guy. We had meetings. Um, we had a meeting the, the morning of the game, which was unheard of. And I had played in eight Pro Bowls prior to that, so I knew how a lot of other coaches had, had approached the game. But... Because of his attention to detail, um, I could see why he was such a great coach. And we fell behind in that ball game, but we ended up coming back at the end and uh, won the football game. And I was the MVP of the game, and and I really understood after uh, going through that process with him that week why he was such a great football coach. I went down to do the Miami Dolphins games in the early 2000s, and the first day I showed up at practice to watch. Dave Wonstadt was the head coach of the Dolphins at the time. And Coach Shula was there just observing. And I walked over to him and I said, Coach, I said, I'm Howard David. I just wanted to say, come over and say hello. He gave me the big, he didn't know me from a hole in the wall. He knew my name because he knew that I was broadcasting the Dolphin games or getting ready to. But he gave me this tremendous greeting and gave me all the attention that I wanted. And I, I was blown away with that because, I mean, this is Don Shula. Hall of Fame coach, I mean, perfect season and all the rest. And he was so nice to me right away that, man, Warren, I could walk on air after that. Yeah, he was a, he was a great man, a, a very nice man. That's what his players always talked about, how, um, how much he loved them and how much they loved him. And, and they had great relationships with him after their playing days were over. And, and I'm sure that's why so many of their guys today are, are really, feeling, uh, really feeling sad, sadder than most uh, guys would feel about their coach passing away. I saw the um, uh, reaction of Larry Zonka, and he was clearly visibly upset. I saw the interview they did with Dan Marino, and the same. Um, when I think about the the, the uh, perfect team in 1972, and it hasn't been done since. The Patriots came close uh, a few years ago, losing to the Giants in the Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, it just, it, all it did was underscore, not only is it difficult to, to go perfect, but all the pressure, and it pressure mounts, doesn't it, as the games go by? No question about it, because that's what you're being compared to. So there's been a team out there that's done it, like the Miami Dolphins, 
And now any team that tries to do it every week after they've probably gone eight or nine and zero, uh, they're going to start being compared to that team. Can they go the, the whole season? Can they be undefeated? Yeah, and that pressure gets to you because there's so much more media than there was back in the day. So you're being asked those questions constantly, and and uh, you talk, you're hearing about it on social media all the time. So yeah, there's a little more pressure that goes along with trying to do something like that today than it was back in in the seventies. Let's. Uh, I know you. I guess you've been watching this um, last dance, this uh, documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And the one thing I came away from in watching it last uh, Sunday night was the constant attention having to give to the media. And after a while, it seemed that Michael Jordan was just worn out from it all. It, I mean, you. I guess you can fully understand what he went through. You know, I really could. I could relate to him because at one point in my career, you know, I was uh, a big-time player, but nowhere near where he was. But uh, I, I understood the, the having to deal with the media day in and day out, having people, you know, gawk at you all the time. You walk into a restaurant, you walk into a hotel. Um, I had to go through service elevators to get to my rooms a lot of times when we went on road trips. Uh, and, and it just wears on you. And those guys had, you know, 82 games they had to deal with every every uh, year, where we only had 16 times that I had to deal with that throughout the season. But uh, just the constant day in and day out of, of going out into public, knowing you had to be on all the time, uh, knowing people were going to want a little bit of your time, it takes its toll on you. And, and for a guy of the magnitude of a Michael uh, Jordan, I could just imagine how it, it got to him to try and um, live up to the level of, of playing the way he did and then have to try and make everybody feel so special after the fact. What's interesting to me, Warren, and we're talking with Warren Moon, Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, what, what came to my mind, and having been around you, uh, and I'm wondering, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you didn't you win the award for best player in the Rose Bowl when you were there with Washington? Yes, I was MVP. All right, so you come out of that game uh, with, with the award and so on, but yet uh, you don't start in the National Football League. Did you feel cheated? Yeah, I felt, uh, I felt very cheated. I felt like um, I just at least deserved an opportunity to um, – to get a chance to play quarterback in the NFL. I mean, most uh, teams were saying, pretty much all teams were saying, I probably wasn't going to be a quarterback. I was going to be switched to another position, maybe defensive back or wide receiver. And that's what prompted me to go to the Canadian Football League because they were going to give me the chance to play quarterback. And again, all I wanted was the opportunity. I didn't I didn't want anything given to me. Um, if I wasn't good enough to play the position, I would probably would have walked away from the game because I didn't think I was good enough to play another position at that level. But uh, to, to not be given that opportunity after you've been, you know, named Pac-8 Player of the Year, you, you go into the, the Rose Bowl and beat a, a great Michigan team and you're an MVP of that game, I thought I at least deserved the chance to, to show what I could do as a quarterback in the NFL. Well, I mean, I, I believe you won a great cup, maybe more than one, went five years with, es- with Edmonton, and then you finally get your crack uh, with Houston, and then later on with Minnesota, Seattle, and Kansas City. Nine Pro Bowls. So whatever you didn't have early on, you sure made up for down the road. You know, um, I think it was just the time that I came in. I knew it was going to be difficult playing that position because there just wasn't a lot of other quarterbacks that looked like me playing that position. And and uh, so I knew the the uh, the road would be tough, but I also thought I would at least be able to, to, to get the opportunity. And because I was denied that, that's the one of the thing I played so hard for throughout my career was to make sure other young African-American quarterbacks got more opportunities. I knew if I played well, if I played at a high level, uh, me and Doug Williams talked about that during the time he was in the league and Randall Cunningham, that we knew if we played at a high level that it would give other young African-American quarterbacks more opportunities. And that's all, again, we were asking for is an opportunity to show what we could do. Were you? Uh, I'm interested in what you said when you said players that look like you, the obvious reference. And it said, well, you could have gone into the NFL as a defensive back or something like that. I mean, in hindsight, to get the opportunity to play in the National Football League, would you compromise yourself if you had a chance to, if you got a mulligan, compromise yourself, go into the NFL playing another position? No. Um, I, I knew well at every uh, level of play from Pop Warner all the way through high school through 
junior college uh, and through college, I, I was at the top level of every one of those levels of football. And there was no reason why I didn't think I couldn't do it at the NFL level. It was just a matter of giving the chance. So if I wasn't going to be given that chance, I was going to play football somewhere. And I, and I made the comment many times that I would have played football in Siberia if, if they would have gave me the opportunity to go there to play uh, because I knew I could play quarterback. Talking with Warren Moon, uh, I'm blown away. I didn't realize, Warren, until I looked it up. When you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2006, what a class. Troy Aikman, Harry Carson, John Madden, Reggie White, Ray Field Wright, and Warren Moon. I mean, I'll put that class up against any. That was a pretty strong class because <laughs> not only did we have good, you know, we had two good quarterbacks, we had uh, one of the probably most dominant defensive players ever play in Reggie White, even though he had passed away at that time. And then one of the greatest coaches in, in John Madden. So, uh, and we had an iconic uh, cowboy lineman in, in Rayfield and also Harry Carson, a guy who had waited a long time to, to finally get inducted. At one point, he didn't want to be on the ballot anymore. He was so frustrated by it, but he got his opportunity and, and was so happy about it. So it, it was a really good class to be involved with. I, uh, I got to know Harry Carson a little bit when Bill Parcells was coaching the Giants, and Harry was one of the mainstays of that outstanding defense. And we were taping Bill's coaches show at a studio in New York, and Harry came out. He was a guest this particular week. And, and I knew Harry to say hello to, but never had much of a conversation with him. But the more I sat down and talked to him, the more I said to myself, this guy is more than just a football player. This guy is, I mean, he has a great understanding of who he is and, and his impact on this team. As a matter of fact, Parcells was the kind of a guy as a coach where he would have his quote-unquote lieutenants. Phil Sims was one of his lieutenants. Harry Carson he would go over to Harry Carson and say to him, you know, your guy over there, the linebacker, cornerback, whatever, he's not getting it done. You better go talk to him. And so it, it seemed to have more impact if Carson talked to a defensive player than if the coach went over and talked to that same player. Yeah, Harry's a very intense guy, uh, really knew the game well. And, and he was a guy, everybody talked about Lawrence Taylor on that defense, and he was a great one, no question about it. But Harry was the guy that was a glue that, that held that foot team together, that, that defensive side of the football team together, and, and a, a very smart player, a great tackler, and, and he also had uh, Lawrence's attention. He could get Lawrence to do things that other people couldn't, so uh, he was a very important part of those those great giant teams that won Super Bowls. Yeah, and also throwing Carl Banks into that mix is another good linebacker they had. Yeah, and Gary Reasons as well. Yeah, Gary Reasons as well, yeah, that was a loaded defense, no doubt about it. Let's get, let's get into the uh, the aftermath of the draft and its impact and uh, and there's a couple of free agents that are sitting out there uh, that are, have big names. Cam Newton's name comes to mind, and, and he doesn't have a job yet. Jadavian Clowney doesn't have a job yet. Do you think that the Seahawks will bring him back? I know they want to. I know they've made him a couple of different offers, but he doesn't have much of a market right now because there's not a lot of other teams that are making bids for him. I think uh, there's one other team out there, maybe the Tennessee Titans, that are in the bidding right now, and, and uh, I think he went into the free agency market thinking that his number was going to be somewhere around $20 million and, and he just didn't have that type of market, so it, it's come down considerably. Um, the Seahawks are still really interested in him, even though they drafted a couple of defensive ends this year in the draft. They also signed uh, a defensive end in, the, in uh, free agency. Um, so they still want him because they know the impact he had on their defense last year. Um, and they'd love to have him back again, but they only have a certain number that they want to pay right now because there's not that big market for him around the league. Now they bring back, uh, they bring Bruce Irvin, signed Bruce Irvin, and that, that that's a good move there. And I, the offensive line is being kind of remolded, retooled. How would you describe it? Pretty much retooled. Uh, I, I think they feel like Russell got hit a little bit too much last year. Um, they had some guys that were getting older. Uh, they let their right tackle uh, and Fetty get away in free agency, which is something they wanted to do. But they still have Dwayne Brown, their anchor left tackle, uh, who's on Russell's blind side. Uh, and uh, they, they brought back Mikey Potty uh, at left guard. Now it's just a matter of plugging those, those other three spots. And they think they've got 
I think they signed four different offensive linemen in the uh, in, in free agency to go along with a couple that they drafted, and they feel like they're going to be able to find the three guys that they need uh, through those that process. So uh, they look like they're in pretty good shape. Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon. I uh, kind of believe, as a former quarterback, that when the draft was done, and by the way, it was a huge success, as everybody knows, with the audience size, etc., and maybe it has a lot to do with the pandemic and there was not much else to watch, but that aside, the draft always gets a big number. When you watch the draft, do you pay particular attention to the quarterbacks as they go, or is it just a universal thing? You just watch the draft, and I mean, how does a former quarterback watch the draft? You know, I watch it as a student of, of football because you know I've been involved in it so long, especially uh, playing the game and then being a broadcaster. So I'm kind of looking at everything, but of course I'm interested in the quarterbacks because they get the most uh, attention going into it. You know, everybody wanted to know about you know where Tua was going to go and, and was Cincinnati going to take Joe Burrow with the first pick and how do the rest of the quarterbacks fall in line, whether it's Justin Herbert or, or Jalen Hurts or the rest of them. So, yeah, all of that uh, is interesting to me, no question about it. And and uh, I watch it closely from, from the quarterback side of it, but I also watch from a league-wide side of it just to see how teams have really improved their football teams. I don't put as much stock in rookies as, as a lot of people do. You really don't know how a rookie is going to pan out for you probably to two or three years down the road. Some guys can come in and make a great impact on your team, but you really won't see uh, where a rookie has really made his value to a couple of years down the road. So I don't put a lot of onus in those guys coming in and making tremendous impacts right away. If they do, it's great. That's gravy, but most of the time it doesn't happen. I had Adam Schefter on from ESPN a couple of days ago, and I made the statement that you just made that when when the draft followers grade the draft, and this team gets an A, and this team gets a B, and I sit there and look at it and go, how do you know? I mean, for two or three years down the road, maybe you're going to find out what the truth is. But I asked Adam, I said, do you do that? He goes, no. He says, for the very same reason you just outlined. Yeah, I look at uh, this year, yeah, I think the um, they had a list come out the other day about all the different uh, fifth-year options that were declined by the top players in the draft, uh, what was that, 2017. It's like four out of the top five guys were declined their option for their fifth year. These are the top five players coming out in the draft that year. Their, their options were declined, which means their team didn't want them uh, for that fifth year because they didn't. They didn't play well, like Mitch Trubisky. I mean, he's a guy that got his his uh, option declined. They don't want to pay him that fifth-year option. So you just never know how these guys are going to pan out. Uh, so, again, that's why I don't look at rookies as, as closely as maybe a lot of other people do as far as being able to come in and turn your team around. That's You bring up an interesting example, too, Trubisky. I mean, he's going to compete now, obviously, with Nick Foles. I mean, Nick Foles, his resume has shown that you know, in a big spot, he can deliver. Just look what he did with the Philadelphia Eagles a couple of years ago. Yeah, you, you just never know with Nick. Uh, Nick has played well. He's played better, it seems like, in, in backup roles where he comes in and, and kind of saves the day, where when he's been given the chance to start uh, teams, start for teams or start games like last year for Jacksonville, it just didn't work out well for him. But uh, we could, we know that he does have that big play capability in him, and, and he has those those short runs and he did have a great year I think what, it was about five or six years ago with, with Philadelphia where he had 27 touchdowns and only two interceptions um, when he was playing uh, with the Eagles but um, since then he hasn't had a season like that but he but he has had that run that took him to a Super Bowl championship a couple of years ago. You mentioned uh, the Philadelphia Eagles and they drafted Jalen Hurts. Uh, Carson Wentz, good quarterback but the injuries have taken its toll the last three years in particular, so you can understand why they were looking at a quarterback. Yeah, I do, and, and I think Carson understands it too, and I, and I think what was good and what I heard is that Philadelphia actually explained to him that they were probably going to draft him prior to that, so it wasn't a big shock to him, uh, not so much like Green Bay did with drafting of, uh, of Jordan Love in the first round. I'm sure they didn't talk to, to um, uh, <laughs> Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers, excuse me, about that before it happened. That always helps if you can talk to your starter about what you might be doing at that position. It just it just helps him a little bit mentally. But um, 
Carson, I think in the seven playoff games that Philadelphia has had over the last three or year, three years or so, he's only played like eight minutes in those games. So uh, he's been hurt a lot, and, and I think that's something that they need to do is make sure they shore up that position just in case something happens to him. And they also have a, a young quarterback uh, for down the road. When the story hit uh, about Aaron Rodgers and and so on, uh, Brett Favre came right out and said he doesn't expect Aaron Rodgers is going to finish his career in Green Bay. And, you know, I mean, there's precedents. Johnny Unitas, Joe Namath, Joe Montana. I mean, there's a very long list of players that were star- Peyton Manning, that were stars for franchises that didn't finish their career with that existing, uh, in that existing scenario. And the, we're talking about guys that have won so, I mean, nothing surprises me, Warren, anymore in sports. Uh, but uh, I would not be the least bit surprised if Aaron Rodgers was someplace else in a year. Well, I think he's been there, what, 15 years or something like that. Right. So uh, that's a long time to be with one organization. Most guys don't play that long with one organization. He's very fortunate to be there that long. And I think a lot of people try and compare that to Tom Brady being with one organization 20 years and still he doesn't finish with that team so uh, for Aaron to be there 15 years and he probably still has another at least two years left on this deal that they have to pay him uh, before it, it's advantageous for them to even get rid of him 17 years with one team would be a long time so you're fortunate to be with, with one team that long well I mean you go no further than Tom Brady right <laughs> 20 years with an organization and it didn't surprise me necessarily probably not you either that uh, that he left the um, the New, the uh, New England Patriots, um, where he lands when you when you look at all the measurables, he's got a good receiving core there. He's got an excellent offensive-minded coach, uh, so I, I could see Tom Brady having success. Still, has going to have to deal with New Orleans in that division. But let me ask you this: as you look at that scenario between Belichick and Brady, who's got more pressure on him to win now? Yeah, I, I would kind of agree with that. Is there, as you sit and you watch, well, you're doing games, obviously, for, for Seattle. But when you sit and you watch uh, in a game, let's just say on a Monday night or a Sunday night when you're not working, and you're watching, is there a quarterback out there right now? And I'm going to set you up for an easy layup. Is there a quarterback out there right now that makes you go, wow? There's a couple of them, to tell you the truth. But, yeah, the one, obviously, is, is Patrick Mahomes yep. in Kansas City. Yeah. Uh, Watching the game, uh, my daughter has a, a Super Bowl party every year at her home, and all of her friends are gathered around the set. And San Francisco goes up double digits, and they say, "Oh, it's going to be a hell of a win for the." I said, "Hold on a second, fellas. Did you ever pay attention to the previous playoff games when this team has come from behind, double digit deficits come from behind? I wouldn't signal a winner just yet. The words weren't out of my mouth, Warren, for two minutes, and this kid is leading another comeback. And I'm thinking to myself. He could be the next $40 million quarterback. Yeah, he's going to be right there unless he decides to take less so he can keep his team together. And, and as it looks of things right now, they've signed 20 of their last, I mean, of their top 22 players uh, back to this team. So, and they still haven't signed him yet. 
So they're they're in pretty good shape to, to have a pretty good run and still be able to pay him the type of money that he deserves. I could see him getting two hundred million dollars guaranteed. Uh, well, not maybe not guaranteed, but two hundred million on a contract for five years with forty million a year. So uh, that could be very easy. But I don't know how that would affect their salary cap. But um, I, I've heard him say that he wants to get you know fair fair money for for what he thinks he's worth. But he also wants to make sure that the team stays as much intact as possible. You were born too soon, my friend. Man, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's all relative. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, Bob Greasy and, and <laughs> Roger Stallback and Bart Starr were probably all saying the same thing when I was playing because we were being paid pretty well at that time, too. The league just continues to grow. It continues to keep making more revenue, and, and I'm happy for the guys who were able to make it. Well, you mentioned Bob Greasy. Uh, I'm doing the Miami Dolphins broadcast. Before a game, Greasy comes into the booth, and he said he was doing college football as well for ABC. He said, I saw a quarterback yesterday. This guy is like, he is ready to play in the National Football League, no doubt about it. He saw Russell Wilson the day before. You know, Russ, I, I um, followed Russell when he was at North Carolina State. So I, I saw him way back when he was a junior, and then he transfers to, to Wisconsin and uh, becomes a starter there, becomes a captain within three weeks after he's there. So that shows you a little bit about his character and about his leadership ability. And, and then I watched his rookie minicamp here in Seattle, and I was so impressed with him by how he was able to take all the, the information that he was given only in a, in a day, and uh, the way he put it all together and went out on the field and, and led, his, led the team through that rookie minicamp like he had been with the Seahawks for a couple of years. His knowledge of the offense, the way he was audibling, um, getting guys in the right position. Uh, I just knew that he was going to be a special player, and once he got on the field and started doing the things that, that he was doing in preseason, uh, I just knew it was a matter of time before they named him the starter going into the regular season. And good for him. Uh, I understand he has um, been very supportive uh, of donating money to, uh, to to help people that have been affected with the uh, pandemic virus and, and so on. I, I think I read where he had donated like a couple of $3 million. Yeah, him and his wife, Sierra, they, they donated where they would um, donate $3 million meals, I think. It oh. is. So I don't know what that okay. – Yeah, on Thursday, supposedly, the NFL is going to release the schedule for the 2020 season, uh, and they expect to have it start on time with or without fans. Your reaction? Well, I want them to do whatever is going to be safe for not only uh, the fans, but also the players and the coaches and, and equipment people and the medical staff and all the people that are involved in the game. Uh, that, that's all I'm really worried about. I'm hoping this thing will, will hopefully you know, be under control by September, but you just never know the way it's going right now. But I would love to see football out there. I think we, we need something like football because people enjoy it. It's the number one sport in this country. Uh, we need some entertainment, uh, just like you saw how the draft was able to, to get that type of audience, 15 million people over three days. Uh, that's because people are starving for, for something that's live, something that's that's uh, entertaining. And, and in the NFL, you can't get any better than that. So I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful everything will be back to normal by September. But if not, if, if they have to do it without fans, those players will still go out there and play just as hard because when they scrimmage against each other in, pre, in uh, training camp, when they go to practice every day, they play just as hard. And they're going to play just as hard whether there's fans or not. You know, I, I, what I took out of the, uh, the, uh, the draft, Roger Goodell looked like he was having a hell of a good time. <laughs> yeah, because he wasn't getting booed every time he went out on that stage. But, but uh, I, I really have to you know, take my hat off to the NFL for pulling that off. Uh, it was a, a, probably a technological miracle the way they were able to pull that draft off. wasn't a lot of glitches at all. Uh, you really got a chance to see a different side of, of the draft with, with these players and their families being together and the joy that everybody is, um, gets out of watching their relative or or their friend or, or their girlfriend, I mean, their, their boyfriend or whatever, get drafted. Uh, it's, it's those special moments that, that 
uh, don't always get captured when you're in New York or in one of these big cities and watching a guy walk up on stage. You got a chance to see it right there in their living room, and, and that was just a different perspective on it. And I wasn't sure how it was going to all turn out when they first said they were going to do it that way, but I, I really liked the way it turned out. Uh, if anybody knows about how to fight for something, you do. You're one of six children? Seven. Seven? Six, six sisters and me. Where, and where were you in the pecking order? Where were you? I was right in the middle. So they took care of the little boy? <laughs> well, until I got a certain age, and then I took care of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, still doing it. that's a heck but, of a story. Uh, that, uh, that's the, I, was, I was the man of the house because my dad passed when I was seven, so I took over a lot of responsibility at a very early age. Yeah, I, you know, but I don't think people fully understand the enormity of that situation. Here you are, a young, you know, you grow up without a dad. Your mother's doing whatever she's got to do to put food on the table for you and your sisters. And all of a sudden, something clicks where you say to yourself, you know what, I have to assume more responsibility. Yeah, I was told I was the man of the house. And uh, I took that responsibility uh, full on. And uh, to the point where I, I bugged the crap out of my sisters all the time because <laughs> they felt like even though I was younger than most of them, I was giving them orders. They didn't like that very much. And, and I was the one that was always a chaperone where if they went to a party, I was the one that had to go with them. My mother would have me go with them to keep an eye on them, and they didn't like that either. So, so I wasn't a, a big uh, hero of my sisters growing up, especially my older ones. But uh, as, they, as I got... Uh, more famous and, and better into football, they started to understand, hey, my, my little brother's pretty cool, pretty cool guy. <laughs> How, if, I'm going to ask you the $64,000 question. If you didn't play football, what would Warren Moon have done with his life? I was going to go to law school. My, um, my uh, major at the time when I first went to college was, um, was pre-law, and, and, and that's what I, I was going to go into uh, maybe be a policeman, believe it or not, because when I was in Pop Warner football, most of my coaches were, were policemen, and a couple of them were chiefs of police in L.A., and I had great respect for the police back then, and I, I always wanted to be a policeman, and then they go on into law school, so that was my, uh, my major going in, and then I changed my major in my junior year to communications, thinking that one day, maybe when my playing days were over, um, I would go into broadcasting, so... It changed a little bit, but if I wouldn't have made it in uh, in pro football, I probably would have went to law school. Interesting, interesting. Well, I, I for some reason I got a feeling that you would have been a success at that too. Well, thank you, Howard. I appreciate that, my man. Uh, it's always great talking to you. Uh, you you had a heck of a career. Uh, still going strong. Still in football uh, with Seattle organization that's uh, that does things the right way. Um, High expectations to see Jadavian Clowney rejoin the Seahawks or no? You know, that's a pretty good question. I think if things continue to go the way they are, because the longer you wait, the more the more the money runs out. Teams just aren't going to have that type of money. And I think if it comes down to, to where he would like to play, I think he would like to be back in Seattle. I think he really enjoyed it here. I think he likes the atmosphere that Pete Carroll has. He takes care of veteran players, takes care of their bodies. So I think he would like to be here, and they had success last year. But, um, you know, guys are going to go depending on what their their uh, their motive is. And if, if, mo if money is his motive, he might want to go to the highest bidder. Appreciate the time, my friend. Always great talking to you. Always great talking to you too, Howard. You stay safe, man. Okay? You, do, you do the same. Take care. He's Warren Moon. I think the world of that guy. You kind of got that idea. He's just one of the guys that gets it. He just gets it. Forget about what he did on the field. That's, you know, that's history. He's a great athlete. Was he jobbed a little bit early on in his career? Yes, he was jobbed. The NFL didn't think a black quarterback could exist. Doug Williams won a Super Bowl with Washington. Warren Moon had a tremendous career, nine Pro Bowls. Didn't win the big game, but established quite a career. 49,325 passing yards, 291 touchdowns. Fantastic career. And on top of all of it, and, and we, we had a lot of fun. We've done a lot of games together. We've had a lot of laughs together. We, um, 
and I didn't bring it up again to Warren because it seems like I do every time I talk to him, but I look at it this way. Um, I'll look at it this way. Moon was quarterbacking for the Kansas City Chiefs. And I'm doing the game for national radio. I go down on the field before the game to see Warren. And he's loosening up and I go over to say hello. And all of a sudden we hear somebody singing. And we, I turned and looked and somebody's practicing the national anthem. There's a woman who's getting ready. She's going to sing the national anthem before the start of the game. And I looked at her again, and I said, man, she looks familiar. I said, Warren, you know who that is? He says, no. And I said, I don't either, but I'm going to go over and find out. And the closer I got, the more I realized it was Loretta Swit who played Hot Lips Houlihan from the MASH series. But she didn't age well. I mean, this is a very attractive woman that things have not gone well in terms of... Uh, how she's aged and so on. That doesn't mean she's a bad person. She's probably a very nice lady. I, I just didn't know her. And I came back and Warren said, who is that? I said, it's Loretta Swit who played Hot Lips Hand and Mesh. He goes, no. <laughs> he looks again. He goes, oh well. And we both had the same look and, and we just started to laugh. Not at her expense. It was just, you know, you meet somebody and if it's happened to you, terrific. You're walking down the street one day and you see somebody who looks familiar and you realize it's a movie star, a singer, a politician, you know who they are, somebody famous. And you want to go over there and you want to say hello to that person. But you, there's something inside you that says, no, don't do it. Happened to me twice. Once on the streets of New York, on Lexington Avenue and 43rd Street in Manhattan. And there's, on the Lexington Avenue side, there is the front door to a company called Chock Full of Nuts, the coffee company. And that was their office building. And on the first floor was a store, a Chock Full of Nuts coffee store. And as I'm standing, as I walk by, this man comes walking out. I went, oh, my God. And I knew who it was. It was Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was my hero when I was a kid. I wore number 42 with my baseball uniform. I wore number 42 in my basketball uniform. I wore number 42 in my football uniform. He was my hero. And he was, well, it was the Brooklyn Dodgers. I'm a little boy with the, cheering for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And Jackie Robinson was my hero. Yeah, I liked Hodges and Snyder and Campanella and, and the rest, and, and, and Ferrillo and all the rest of that, that group. But Jackie Robinson was the guy. He was the guy. And so he walks right by me and I'm staring at him like an idiot. And all of a sudden, you ever talk to yourself in the middle of the street? You got to be nuts to do that. And I'm I said, you idiot, you got to meet him. I ran down the street, caught up to him and I said, excuse me, Mr. Robinson, you don't know me, but when I was a, a young man in Brooklyn, you were my hero. And he stood there and talked to me for a half hour. Do you know what that meant to me? That a guy of his notoriety would stop and talk to somebody he doesn't even know. And we stood there for a half an hour on 43rd Street. And afterwards I said, I've taken way too much of your time, I apologize. I was working during the, the daytime and I was going to school at night, going to college at night. And so... I said, I want to thank you for the time you've given me, and I won't hold you up any longer. Thank you for giving me all this time. And he says, is there something you want me to sign? I went, whoa. I'm checking my pockets. All I got is the money in my pocket. I take out a dollar bill, and he signs it to me, and it sits in my office, in my home, in a glass-enclosed case. It's cherished. It means the world to me. And when Jackie Robinson died, it bothered me a great deal. And he died as a young man. He didn't come into baseball until he was in his 20s, late 20s. He got out of baseball, I want to say, when he was 36. And when he was traded 
when the Dodgers traded him to the Giants and he said, I'll never play for the Giants, and he quit. He retired. And I stood up and cheered. I said, you can't play for the Giants. Can't do it. You can't play for the enemy. The Giants are the Dodgers' enemy. The Dodgers are the Giants' enemy. The Yankees and the Red Sox have a, have a rivalry. Harvard and Yale has a rivalry. Auburn, Alabama has a rivalry. Ohio State, Michigan has a rivalry. Texas, Oklahoma has a rivalry. Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali had a rivalry. You can't be part of the other side. Simple as that. And so, when you get the chance to see somebody that you idolized, as I did, and I'm at this particular time, maybe I'm in my 20s, my early 20s, and I get to meet Jackie Robinson. It stayed with me. It stayed with me. As a matter of fact, there's a picture right here. That's Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was something special. And if you're too young to know who he was, except what you read about in books, Jackie Robinson was a combination of, I don't know, Ricky Henderson, Pete Rose, a guy that was a was a threat every time he was on base because he can completely take you out of your rhythm. And how many balks did he force? And in the 1955 World Series when he stole home and Yogi Berra swore for years afterwards that he tagged him out. Umpire called him safe. He was safe. Take it to my grave. He was safe. Yogi Berra said he was out. And he argued. He stole home in the World Series. The abuse that this man went through with Montreal before he went to Brooklyn and the fan base in Brooklyn after seeing the way that he played and with the fire and energy that he played with on the base pads and in the field and at bat, immediately he won over the crowd. They started to look at Jackie Robinson as he's one of us. Forget about what color he is. It doesn't matter. He wasn't even the best baseball player in the Negro Leagues. Josh Gibson was. Satchel Paige had more notoriety. But Jackie Robinson had the metal toughness to endure what he was going to endure. And that's what Branch Rickey saw when he signed Robinson. Because he was a college man, one. Ran track, played football and baseball at UCLA. And had the mental capacity to take the abuse. Which means he had to bite his lip and turn the other cheek. And towards the end of his career, he became a fireball on the field. And he didn't hold back. And he became very outspoken in terms of civil rights. And so acknowledged by Martin Luther King. So greatness is achieved. It's not thrust upon you unless you've earned it. Don Shula was a great coach. Don Shula won more games than any other coach in the history of the National Football League, 347. Don Shula won two Super Bowls. Don Shula was a great coach. The word great is overused in our profession more often than it's not. Don Shula was a great coach. Jackie Robinson was a great baseball player and a great human being. Handful of people that have crossed my paths. Warren Moon is an example. First time I met Warren Moon, I drew a liking to him right away because he was a guy that you could joke with. He was a guy that, that you respected his intellect and you respected his career. And the first time that I called a game that Warren played in was 1993, wild card game. He's playing for the Houston Oilers. And the game was in Buffalo, and it was the first-round playoff game. And Houston was ahead 28-3 to at halftime. 
And then in the third quarter, early in the third quarter, Frank Reich, who was the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, threw an interception, and Bubba McDowell returned it for a touchdown and made a score 35-3, to and it was early in the third quarter. And you wouldn't have blamed the Buffalo Bills fans if they left the stadium, but they didn't. They stayed as if they knew something. And Buffalo wound up forcing the game into overtime and won it with a field goal. Greatest comeback in the history of the National Football League. 32-point comeback. Think about it. Phenomenal. And Frank Reich was a backup quarterback to Jim Kelly, and he engineered that comeback. And I'm not asking Warren Moon. We've already talked about it a dozen times. That game just sticks in his craw because he knew that the Houston Oilers had a good team. They could score with anybody. Unfortunately, they couldn't run the ball, and that meant they were passing the ball a lot and keeping the clock stopped on incompletions. So, there's a a, a one-liner on the bottom of today's Daily News in New York. It said that Don Shula had the Jets number except for one time. That's when he was coaching the Baltimore Colts in the in Super Bowl three, a game that had significant historical significance, I should say. Colts had great team. They dominated the NFC or the NFL. And the AFL and Joe Namath had other ideas. And I'm in Tripoli, Libya in the United States Air Force, sitting in my bunk at 11.30 at night, Tripoli time, when I get the game on Armed Forces Radio. It's now 11.30 Tripoli time, and the Jets are ahead 10 to nothing. And I said to my roommates, I'm going to bed. And they said, how could you go to bed? Don't you want to know the outcome of the game? And I said, i got to get up and do a radio show at 6 o'clock in the morning. I have to be up at 5 it's now 11.30. i got to get some sleep. I did not know the outcome of the game until the next morning. I go take a shower, get dressed, get in my car, go to the radio station. Walked into the radio station at 5.10, 5.15. And we had teletype at that time. And I walked into the teletype machine and I'm looking through to see the, out- the final score of the game. Now I'm a Jet fan. And I come to and I, Jet 16, Colts 7. I said, what? I never expected them to win the game. I expected them to cover the spread <laughs> because I had money bet on the game and I had more, too much money bet on the game because I'm making $97 a month and I got a lot more than that bet on the game. And I said, you idiot. How do you bet more? I had a lot of money bet on the game. I go to get go to get paid on the fifteenth of the month, three days after the game, and put the money together. Go get a money order, send it back to my wife. I said, "Don't ask where this money came from. Just put it in the bank." So there are moments that you remember, and there are people that you remember because of some incident in your life. I remember Warren Moon when I'm calling a game that he's playing in, the 1993 wildcard game against Buffalo. It must still haunt him even today because he knew they were better. But imagine being the Buffalo Bills. Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl four times. Not one victory. Marvel Levy was a great coach. Bruce Smith's a Hall of Fame player. Jim Kelly, Hall of Fame player. Thurman Thomas. James Lofton. You name it, they had it. Andre Reed. They were loaded. Couldn't win a Super Bowl with that cast. They might have been the best team on the field during most of those four Super Bowls they went to. But came away empty. So it's like something that sticks in your craw for the duration and you can't get over it. It bothered me when I saw the perfect coach. It bothered me when I saw 
a perfect coach. Bothered me when I heard that he passed on because he was a heck of a guy. Great coach, obviously, but a heck of a guy. And he made me comfortable the first time I met him. As big as he was, as known as he was, particularly in South Florida, where he could have run for mayor of the city of Miami and won hands down. He could have run for the governor of Florida and won hands down. But he had a great sense of humor. He had a great way about him. But yet he was the boss and he was in charge. And when he ran his team and they won, they won every game in 1972. Unfortunately for the Miami Dolphin organization, they're still chasing that rainbow from 48 years ago. Still chasing it from 1972. Will they ever get back and win a Super Bowl again? I don't know. It's hard. Everything, you know, the stars got to be aligned. The planet's got to be in certain order for you to win a Super Bowl because that signifies the ultimate in your career. That's the crown. You ask any football player. If you know one, ask them. Which would you rather have? A Super Bowl ring or a Hall of Fame ring? Tough question. I believe that better than 50% of a football player, any football player, would say Super Bowl ring. Because that signifies you're one step ahead of the next guy. And when you win, look at Brady, six Super Bowl rings. Joe Montana won four. Terry Bradshaw won four. Tom Brady won six. Is he the greatest of all time? Based on six rings, got to say yes. Was he the best quarterback of all time? In terms of throwing ability, in terms of reading the defenses, in terms of winning with his team. He and Montana, I don't know, they're pretty dominant, but nothing like the last 20 years. So greatness is achieved. Greatness is saluted. And so to Coach Shula, in your memory, I salute you, sir, because you are a one of a kind. The perfect coach. He'll be missed. I'm Howard David. Thank you very much for being a part of the program. Stay well. Stay safe. Thank you for watching. I'm Howard David. Hope you have a great day. And to close out the show, a friendly reminder that Howard David Inside Sports is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. Go to BetOnline.ag, use the promo code MYPOD100, and they'll match your first deposit up to $1,000. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great rest of your week. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.